demand more of the books that we purchase, the recordings that we incorporate, the scores that we buy, because money speaks. That's today's guest, music education professor and author, Karen Howard, helping us understand that our curricular choices and where we spend our money can send a powerful message well beyond our own classrooms. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Karen Howard is an associate professor of music at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. In addition to her teaching schedule, Dr. Howard is an international clinician specializing in children's music culture, ethnomusicology, creative and folk dance traditions, early childhood music education, assessment, and curriculum development. Find Karen's full bio show notes and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? I like the way that she points out how much students, even way younger kids, appreciate knowing about a composer, the place they lived, and the people around them. What do you think, Steve? Well, I never thought it was odd that I knew how many children Bach had or that Beethoven's father had a drinking problem until Dr. Howard explained why. She's a general and choral music expert, but this discussion is so applicable to all music teachers as we think about repertoire selection and how we teach it to our students. Yeah, I appreciated her challenge to make a list of all the composers you've ever exposed your students to and see what's out of balance. Let's get to our conversation. Karen Howard, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with a discussion on terminology, musicking in particular. I see from the bio on your St. Thomas website that you spell it with a K, which implies the Christopher Small definition as opposed to the David Elliott version without a K. Many of our listeners might be unfamiliar with the verb musicking. What are the basics that we need to know? Sure. As somebody who is very interested and um, one of my specialties is in ethnomusicology, I was very drawn to Christopher Small's mid-90s work called Musicking, the book is available, where he thinks about it as all of the things that create the act uh, that equals to music, right? So it's the verb of the people making the music, the composers, the arrangers, whether it's digital, live, the audience, whether it's as a group or alone through the earbuds, at home, in the car, people singing along to the radio, the audience, the people that work at the performance venues, all of those things come together to create this idea of musicking, which to me represents something beyond just the sonic Many music education textbooks talk about musicking, but they use the David Elliott version. Christopher Small's version, unfortunately, maybe hasn't gained quite as widespread inclusion. What's the important difference, in your opinion, between those? I think Christopher Small, as an ethnomusicologist, was coming from the perspective of music's function in life for all people, not just people that are heading toward a professional career in music or that are in formal, what we would call formal, even if it's a you know busking performance setting, but all of the ways that music functions in culture, as culture, really those sociological questions that drive a lot of my research and my teaching as well, just picturing musicking as the larger interaction in 
any society, whether it's a, a group of friends, a particular ethnic culture, a particular ensemble, a music department, a church choir, whatever that might be. That's what I'm interested in and is how that music functions within that ecosystem, as it were. So whereas the Elliot might be more like the act of making music is musicking and that's pretty much it. When we think about the small version with the K, that could be if you and Alan and I are sitting around just listening to music, small would say that is musicking also, even if we might not be making sounds as it were. Yes, because outside of ourselves, right? if I'm performing, yes, it's for my own benefit, but really we often perform with the intention of it getting to somebody. And so that relationship is something in ethnomusicology. And I first have to credit my mentor, Pat Campbell, also Barbara Lundquist with their groundbreaking work. Barbara Lundquist in the 70s, Pat in the 80s, 90s, current as well. She's still hard at it of making these connections between ethnomusicology and music education so that we look at music's larger function, which allows us, important to me, to see the people. And so leading into discussion on diversity, equity, inclusion, access issues, Christopher Small, as well as your mentors, kind of decades ahead of the renewed emphasis on wanting to evaluate these things as music educators. So they were maybe not using the terms that we use today in terms of diversity, equity, but it sounds to me like they were very much talking about those things many years ago. Is that kind of how you see it as well? Well, I would say they actually have been using those terms. Um, for some reason, the broader music education audience maybe turning a deaf ear <laughs> might be the phrase, you know, with, without having a moment to think about how I might say that more carefully. So there are publications going back to the 70s with Barbara Lundquist, where she was highly, strongly, passionately advocating for this sort of work. And then Pat Campbell, Bill Anderson, with all of their publications together. Pat's the one that brought together a consortium of educators, both ethnomusicologists and music educators, to try and uh, there was a Wesleyan symposium where they tried to look at what is preventing this crossover. And I think we know now that part of what was keeping that barrier in place, this lack of fulfillment of the ideal of multiculturalism, is that we weren't looking at the power relationships that were in place, right? If you look at music as sonic only, it doesn't allow you to look at how music functions in a society and why some musics are valued more than others, right? Which is all about diversity, equity, access, inclusion. So Karen, could you help me out and reassure me and let me justify something I got in trouble for about 25 years ago when I was a band teacher? I thought it was a great use of classroom time to share current emerging rock or other popular music with my students who listen to a lot of pop music or country music. And I'm like, no, you people need to understand what's going on with Nine Inch Nails. So back in the early 90s, I was playing Nine Inch Nails for my band students instead of like practicing a swear engine piece. So I was helping doing some musicing there, right? I think bringing in any genres are appropriate, acceptable. You know, I, I think where we, where we get into hot water is if we imply a hierarchy with those. But bringing in something that you were excited about, the fact that you brought in Nine Inch Nails must mean that we're close in age, right? So uh, that was important music at its time, really important and felt different, right? It was a different approach to creation. So I wouldn't have had any issue with it. I would have clapped for it. 
So as teachers today, and maybe people listening and hearing the verb musicking for the first time today, and what it means to you, how can that play a role in our day-to-day thoughts as we think about maybe little things we can be doing to help address some of the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, access in a music classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. I hadn't really thought about directly making that connection, but it's so clear when you look at it that way that the way Christopher Small was thinking about musicking, as I said a couple of minutes ago, means you have to think of the people from which the music comes or who the composer is and from where they came. And if you think about it, those of us in the U.S. anyway, that went through a typical music education program, then likely we know the history. I mean, why do I know how many children Bach had? Because I know, because that was emphasized. Why do I know Beethoven's father had a drinking problem, right? Are those relevant to the culture of the time? Perhaps I'd rather know more about what were the political tensions of the time? Were there religious factions that were having difficulties with each other? What were the geographic structures? Were that composer is from that either gave them access to nearby cultures or kept them isolated from nearby cultures, thereby influencing their choice of instrumentation, their choice of harmonic function. These ways of thinking about the larger picture, if there was a dance, right, we have all of these instrumental arrangements of gavots and waltzes and pavans, but what were those dances meaning in their time? Who performed them? Were they of the people or were they of the elite? Was there a hierarchy there? What were those structures. And I think that can happen at the elementary level, that can happen at the secondary level, that can happen when we're working with toddlers, that can happen in a college course, that can happen in a a senior citizen choir. It's taking the time to know as much as you can about every piece that you bring in every piece. And I'm teaching a course right now, later today, it's a two week course for our graduate students in choral conducting. And what it keeps coming down to is, if you can't answer these questions about the piece, move on, move on. If it's not in the performance notes, maybe don't reward the publisher with money for that score. Demand more of the books that we purchase, of the recordings that we incorporate, of the scores that we buy, because money speaks, right? That's an easy place to start is where your precious limited budget dollars go. You're referencing repertoire selection, which I know diversifying repertoire selection is an expertise of yours. And you just mentioned one step we can take to diversifying. But I would imagine even if we followed the advice you just gave, it could still be possible to come up with a pretty narrow view of what repertoire might look like. What are some other steps you encourage when people are thinking, yeah, I need to diversify what I'm putting in front of my students? Sure. There's a couple of ways to come at that question. And one is diversifying genres, diversifying cultures, and then diversifying if they're composed pieces or recordings of performing artists, diversifying who is represented there intentionally and including your students in that conversation. So a friend of mine at University of North Texas has been working on a project where he gathered every program from every all-state band, orchestra, choir, and other, if they had jazz band, et cetera, from across the country for the last 25 years. He's still working on it, but I asked, can I look at those programs for a different reason? I wanted to look at the repertoire. So I did a six-year study of one state, because even just that was plenty, 
And it showed that three years running, all of the compositions for an all-state choir were by uh, white men, every single one. Now, some of those white men were not from the U.S., so they may have seemed diverse, but it means it wasn't a very critical eye. And when I added a seventh year, I was able to get an Alice Parker piece on that list. You know, there's that question of, is anybody watching the meta programming to see who are we making space for? And Is anybody looking at what languages are being represented? Is anybody looking at what cultures are being represented both within a program and over time? But we know, you and I, we know these are staffed by volunteers who are already pressed. So it it may be something that organizations need to pay some people, right? Your job is to go through and analyze what we have and what are our weak spots and where could we really strengthen our commitment to both the diversity in representation and in repertoire. If I can add one other thing onto there, I always say to people, if they're not sure where to begin, if it's elementary teachers, just make a list of every song you've taught in the last three years. Yeah. And it might be hundreds, but we know we repeat things right from one year to the other. And then just track how many languages did you use? What cultures did you represent? And that's how we speak our values out to our students in the community right, is through what we program. Our repertoire shows our values as an educator. If we have an ensemble, when the audience looks at the program, that's our value statement as the director, because all right, I picked this repertoire because I value it. And implicit in there is who's represented. The all-state thing, you know, I kind of go back and forth on this because it involves such a small number, a percentage of students, and really only those involved in high school secondary ensembles. So a small percentage of a small percentage of high school students, but also very important in the message that it sends because that kind of guides people on their repertoire selection. And I love the idea for the veteran teacher of going back three or four years. What about one of your recent St. Thomas graduates who is in his or her first year or or second year and says, I want to make sure in three years when I go back and make my list that I'm proud of what it looks like. What do you say to that person? Yes, I will answer that. And I will just say as far as the particular population of Allstate, I think that's where a lot of our future music teachers come from right? So all the more reason they have this mind-blowing experience, perhaps in their junior, senior year, except not this last batch because of COVID, right? And we're going to see that impact because they didn't have that experience of, I must make this happen, right? So when we have that captive audience of who will likely become either performers or educators, that's a chance to model for them at what we consider a really advanced level. This is how we program. That's an excellent point. Yes. Thank you. And when it comes to any students that were here at St. Thomas, I teach every single class through this philosophy because I know in their whole program, they get one class in diversity the whole time. So I make sure that I model whether it's preschool through second grade methods, third through fifth, diction, choral methods, secondary general. Of course, I teach the world music class here in all of those I use the same philosophy. So in the repertoire we pick, it means I've had to revamp, create a new model for some of these classes. And so as in the years that I've been here at St. Thomas, my students have been kind of with me as I figure out, um, can I practice what I'm preaching as important? 
for the student who wasn't fortunate to attend St. Thomas these last couple of years, it's a little overwhelming to think, okay, we've got all these languages, we've got all these different parts of the world with different music, some of which I don't really understand, so I might not be. Where can someone in that situation who maybe didn't have the training or background, where can they start? Well, you couldn't have thrown me that pass in a, in a better fashion for me to say, come here to St. Thomas in the summer, <laughs> where they can spend lots of time with me. I teach several classes for music educators, both the, the one I'm teaching now, Global Traditions in Choir. I offer one of the sections of the Smithsonian Folkways World Music Pedagogy Certificate course. On some years, I teach a Latin American music course, which has a very broad title, but I sort of think about what am I in the mood for this year? And then we focus on those cultures from the Caribbean, Central America, South America. This year we're doing um, two Puerto Rican genres and Puerto Rico's part of the U.S. and an Afro-Cuban genre. And we're also doing a little Mexican mariachi, which is more popular in the U.S. than in Mexico and a Mexican son jarocho. But also, if I could take a moment to say that I've been inspired my whole career by Judith Cook Tucker's work with World Music Press. And when she retired, the press went into a quasi-retirement. And with her blessing, I've picked up where she left off is my hope and have started a new series. I, I convinced GIA that this was worthy and they jumped right in. So a publisher, shout out to GIA, a publisher that is learning the kinds of things that people want and they want this level of detail and information. So it's called World Music Initiative. We have our first title that came out in November, um, which, okay, it was my book with my teacher, Kwasi Dunyo from Ghana. We have another one coming out in August with Le Zheng from Shanghai and Sarah Watts from Penn State, a beautiful collection of songs from throughout China, all collected from experts in that particular region. We have another one coming out of Somali songs collected here from our Somali community. So that will be growing and that's another great place to go. So I want to go back to something that was almost an offhand remark you made about how mariachi music is more popular in the United States than it is in Mexico. It's become a decent initiative in some rural communities with a lot of Mexican immigrants here in the Midwest to have a mariachi program. It's, it's very cool and people love it and it seems very inclusive. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of two sides of something that one is if you have a larger Mexican-American community, then it would certainly be perhaps culturally relevant, a disposition that is culturally relevant to learn about mariachi and perhaps either incorporate mariachi into the existing ensembles or to go full in and start a small mariachi program and then see if it grows, right? Obviously, whoever that instructor is would need some instruction themselves unless it's of their background. But at the same time, being culturally relevant means knowing who the students are. And it doesn't, just because a student is Mexican-American doesn't mean they like mariachi. They might, but they might not want to be identified. Maybe that's not a music they listen to at home, or maybe their parents do and it drives them nuts. Maybe they love it, right? But being culturally relevant means finding out what's the connection. And at the same time, if you teach somewhere with no Mexican-American community, mariachi music could still be a great option. So it could work in both places. There's actually a university, my, my friend Amanda Soto teaches at a Texas university where you can major in mariachi in the music department. So as we talk about world music and your world music initiative series, are there some common things that music teachers maybe get wrong or misunderstand when we just think about the idea of world music? Yeah, I think so. I think 
What I've seen over these many years and in my research is that there's a misperception that musics that are so-called diverse are different than what's typically been taught in school music these last 200 years. And I think the misperception is that world music is that music, and then there's the music that's important to teach. And the reality is Schutz, Josquin, an Appalachian folk song, all of that is world music, all of it. And the philosophy that for some people just sounds so blasphemous, which is that within those, if we think about ourselves as educators, one isn't more important than another. One isn't better than another. One might be technically harder than another. One might have had a larger listening audience than another. One might be perceived as class related to social class. And then with that comes bias, right? We also have a history of valuing musics that are notated over oral traditions when the larger part of our broader world makes music without notation. And somehow in U.S. music education, the message that gets through is the ones that are worth teaching are the ones that are notated. So for World Music Initiative, we have to notate them so that we have a way to deliver it to people. But it doesn't mean that we're saying now it matters because it's notated. We're saying we'd love to share this with you. And we realize this is a language you probably speak. So let us give it to you in a way that you speak. So that's probably one of the biggest misperceptions is world music means because that's not in English and it's from a different country. World music could also be apple tree, apple tree, right? It's a song of the world <laughs> made by people. And a second misconception, which is partnered with that, is that American music is white folk songs from Texas or Virginia or Kentucky. And it's something I'm asked all the time, or Stephen Foster represents the best of American music. And when I tell people that I don't, I don't use Stephen Foster songs, once I became aware that he was participating in the blackface tradition, and then I'll hear, well, that was at the time. And I'll say, and it wasn't right then either. So I often ask, well, what is American music to those of us that are in the field of diversity? Any music performed in the US, any. We have the largest Somali community here in Minnesota outside of Somalia. Their music has become American music. They're doing it here. Those are the two big ones. And you've kind of addressed some of this a little bit, but I want to shift specifically to this idea of anti-bias pedagogy, another area of expertise for yours. I'm curious if there's anything we haven't discussed that you see as sort of low-hanging fruit with this issue, where you're out and about and you see, we could make a really big difference with this or that, and it just wouldn't be that hard. Anything we haven't talked about yet today in that regard? Yes, I would include with all respect to my fellow company here, I would include that uh, white men in music education need to become a loud voice in this conversation. And especially white men, I mean, believe me, white women, we're, we're right there one half step behind you, which is in general a metaphor for how things are. But if we could get white men, particularly at the secondary level, to take this as their responsibility also at a loud level, I think that would start to move the conversation forward. Because when I look at the Midwest instrumental conference that happens every December and I read through what's happening in there, I'm not seeing it match the larger dialogue in education. I'm seeing it match the same goals. ACDA, I have to give a shout out to ACDA. They're really making efforts. They've put a massive amount of people and time and support 
behind trying to shift the conversation. It's, it's got a long way to go. I feel if we could also make it not up to the elementary teachers to be the ones that do diverse material. It's sort of seen as the, well, that's where they do it um, instead of all of us together. I think that could help tremendously. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And especially as a former high school band director, I'm thinking, well, I have the published literature that's available to me and it fits in a certain category and that's about all I have. Whereas my colleague Karen down at the elementary school, easy enough for her to teach a Somali folk song or whatnot. And I think you're absolutely right that it sort of becomes convenient for people teaching ensembles at the secondary level to sort of use the published curriculum that's available as an excuse to say, well, we aren't even able to address that in our classroom. And as you just pointed out, even if it's a little challenging, that doesn't mean it, that it's an okay excuse, and, and it's certainly doable. I, I think that's true, and, and what I was just thinking of as you said that is those of us that are in the position of training music educators, it's our job to build their confidence to do an arrangement. Let's say you teach here in Minnesota. We have a large indigenous population. We have a large Somali population. We have a large Hmong population. And you're not going to find published materials by collaborating with somebody from the culture, learning tunes, getting their green light to go ahead and use their skills to make their own arrangement or involve the students in. Somehow we don't pass that philosophy on. I know when I teach choral methods, I have them go back to their world music collection from that class and arrange some of the songs from there, simply so that they're thinking about cross-pollinating and breaking free of the reading packet shackles that are on us. Because what I say is, if you only go based on what you get at conferences or what the publishing companies send you, they send you what they want to sell. And when we have conferences, sometimes the publishers are one of the sponsors, Right? But I think what we need to do as those that are having conferences is push back and say, we want to pick what's in the reading packets for these goals. That's a different conversation than the way it works now. A, different, a way to get different repertoire, commissioning people to fill in these gaps, etc. Well, Karen Howard, thank you very much for joining us today to share your insight on these important issues. Can we close with uh, lightning round questions on a few lighter topics? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay. What is the best restaurant in the Twin Cities? For me, that is Chang Hang on University Avenue in St. Paul. I mean, we have a lot of wonderful restaurants, but it's the one I'll go to before any others. It's a Cambodian restaurant run by a family. Everything is made one dish at a time. It's the best Chang Hang. Favorite children's book? Katie Camillo, who's an internationally known award-winning author, happens to live right here in Minneapolis. And the one I always give to everybody is La La La. It's La La La, um, a story of hope. And it's about when somebody hears your song and that you feel seen and heard. It's beautiful. Is there a piece of music, a composer, or a performer that you wish more people knew about? This isn't one performer, but I tell everybody that'll listen to me to make NPR music part of their schooling, regardless of age, and to watch every single Tiny Desk concert. That's what I wish, because it's how I think curriculum should be constructed. Uh, book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with music. Oh, can I give two? You may. Okay. Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White America by Ijeoma Olua. 
fantastic bestseller. And then I'm crazy for N.K. Jemisin, award-winning sci-fi author. I just, The City We Became, a book one of an upcoming trilogy. It's amazing. And finally, if you were not a musician or music teacher, what do you think your career would have been? I heard you put words together, but I don't understand what that sentence means. So I can't, I can't imagine. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess I thought maybe I would like to be an ESL teacher. It feels like that would sync with my uh, focus. I love it. Well, Karen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so great to meet you. This is, this is so fascinating. Thank you for the work you do. It's really important. And thank you for the work you do. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.